that for three or four hundred years others have been singing that song. It stands us in good stead, I think, doesn't it? I don't know if they sung it better or worse than us, but they <coughs> certainly would have sung it. If you've got your Bible there, please do open it back up again to 2 Timothy. So uh, that's um, page 1,000. 196, page 1196, 2 Timothy. If you remember, uh, if you've been coming for a few weeks following in this series in 2 Timothy, which many of us have been, uh, the church in Ephesus, so Timothy is like a regional leader, a a bishop over this cluster of churches all around the the Ephesus kind of area. No idea exactly how many individual churches, but uh, a number. And, And the church, or the cluster of churches, is really on the ropes. It's in a really difficult, dangerous, potentially fatal situation. Not simply because it's received one crushing blow, but a whole sequence. Um, R. Isaac, who's six, for a year now he's been doing karate lessons, about a year or so he's been doing karate. British military martial arts, it's called, and he absolutely loves it. Ex-Royal Marine called Jamie, who actually our paths crossed when we were both about 17 or 18, Jamie and I. Um, and uh, now randomly we meet again 20 odd years later. Uh, Ex-Royal Marine, and this is his second career. And he takes these little kids, uh, Isaac's the youngest at six, up to about 11 years old, and uh, teaches them a whole r- array of martial arts. And after a year, it's starting to get interesting. It's really highlight for me, it's Monday early afternoon on a, uh, early uh, evening on a Monday because after a year, Isaac's no longer just throwing the odd little punch in a slightly cack-handed kind of way he's starting to put combinations together and it excites me, so he can do three or four punches, then a little roundhouse kick, and then an axe kick and you know, there's this combination of half a dozen moves, and why that is important, is if he ever gets to the point of competing um, is uh, a sequence of punches and kicks is far greater than the sum of its parts, if that makes sense. So if if you clock someone once on the chin, that stings a little bit, but they recover and they're back at you. If you clock them twice on the chin, once an uppercut and then a kick into the gut, they're pretty much finished, aren't they? And so Isaac, just just before half term, I was very excited. I had to pin myself to the seat with the other parents not to get up and cheer, because he was up against a 10-year-old. Now, admittedly, the 10-year-old is on week three. Isaac's a year in, but Isaac took out the 10-year-old. Really? That's, that's my boy. I know, ter- terrible. Anyway, anyway, the point is, uh, telling that little story, other than living the dream that I... Um, is is uh, that the church in Ephesus, this cluster of churches, it's not just received one, one punch, one body blow. It's received a whole sequence. And it's the sequence, I think, that is one of the major problems why this church is at such... Risk. It could have recovered from one, it could have recovered from two, but bam, 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 and it's finding itself really on the ropes. Let me show you, I think there's five, let me just quickly show you what's going on. They're reflected in the people uh, that are here. The first body blow is that people are deserting the church. So you can look at uh, 2 Timothy 1, sentence 15, and he says, You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. Or again, right at the end in chapter 4 and verse 16, Paul says, at my first defence, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. So Paul, the founder of this church, is being deserted. And that's a body blow for a church, isn't it? If people actually start to walk out the door and say, I'm going. But you could recover from, from that, couldn't you? That desertion. But then there's a second body blow, which is not only deserters, but there are wanderers. People swerving away from the truth. You can see that in chapter 2, sentences 17 and 18. Their teaching will spread like gangrene 
Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have departed or swerved from the truth. So the second body blow this church then receives is not only some people walking out the door, if you like, but now others who staying in the church but swerving away from the truth and starting to teach an alternative message and attaching Jesus' name to it. The third body blow is what I've called adulterers, and I don't mean that in their own human languages, uh, marriages rather, I mean it in their relationship with God. There are people who are falling out of love with God because they've chosen to fall in love with other things. You see them in chapter 3, sentences 1 to 5. Uh, see there, chapter 3, verse 2. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. Uh, verse 4 there, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It's spiritual adultery, isn't it? They're replacing a love for God with a love for themselves, pleasure, money, those sorts of things. And the shocking thing is, we might look at that and say, well, that's people out, outside the church, isn't it? Surely, who are loving money and self and pleasure more than God. That's, that can't be in the church, can it? Well, look at chapter 4, verse 10. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, Demas was a tried and tested church worker, been a Christian and a Christian leader for decades. And what's happened? He's fallen out of love with God because he has fallen in love with this world and has deserted. So the third body blow, you've got deserters, you've got people who swerve away from the truth. You've then thirdly got adulterers, if you like, people who give up their love for God and replace it with a love for other things. And then there's a fourth body blow, which is deliberate deceivers... So not people who have just maybe slightly unconsciously swerved away from the truth, but deliberate deceivers. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women or vulnerable people who are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's the fourth body blow is people deliberately trying to deceive and, and take the vulnerable, those on the edge of the church perhaps, or those who are very anxious about their faith or very uncertain of who Jesus is, deliberately take them, kidnap them and, and take them away and deceive them. And then the fifth and final body blow is not inside the church. All those first four are inside the church to some extent. Deserters, wanderers, adulterers, deceivers. The fifth and final body blow comes from outside. It's just plain persecutors. Chapter 4, verse 14. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. And he's been, for 20-odd years, he's been a thorn in Paul's flesh in this church in Ephesus. Alexander, the metal worker, um, against the church because... Metal workers made their money by selling idols and the church starts to win people to Jesus and people stop buying idols. And so his, his take home at the end of the month has shrunk significantly. And so he's attacking the church to preserve his income. So do you see that sequence of body blows? And do you see why it's the, the sequence, <coughs> the fact it is more than one which puts this church on the rope? So we've said a few times, a, a higher proportion of our little group in the evening is in some kind of leadership within the church. And actually you might look at that and think, yeah, we, we or the little bit I lead, we could survive one or two of these body blows. 
if a couple of people walked out of my life group and deserted, I, I could, we, we'd, we'd be okay with that. If one person within children's church started to swerve away from the truth, we could handle that. But can you imagine all five coming in, one after the other? Bam, bam, bam. People deserting, walking out the door. A couple of people in the church starting to preach a swerved and twisted and distorted message. A little cluster in the church falling out of love with God and beginning to love pleasure and money and wanting to bring that love into the fabric of the church itself. Then you've got a couple of deliberate people who turn up and begin to try and take our more vulnerable folk and lead them astray intentionally. And then perhaps someone tries to burn down one of our buildings. That's, a, that's pretty on the ropes kind of stuff, isn't it? And interestingly, just as a bit of an aside, it's interesting to track and try and speculate whether this church in Ephesus made it, whether it got itself up off the ropes, or whether it actually found itself flat on its back and unconscious, maybe even fatally wounded. Because we know more about the church in Ephesus than any other New Testament church. We know how it was founded and began in Acts chapter 19 and 20. We have the letter called Ephesians, written predominantly to the churches around Ephesus. We have 1 and, one and 2 Timothy, written over a 15-year period to its main leader, Timothy. And then we have in Revelation, Ephesus is one of the churches who receives a letter from Jesus via John, who wrote Revelation. And if you'd like to, and have a Bible there, why don't you just turn to Revelation chapter 2, if you'd like to. It's page... Um, 1,234, page 1,234, because it makes interesting reading to speculate now uh, how this church did. In Revelation 2, verse 2, it's Jesus speaking to this church in Ephesus. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. And that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So you might say, yes, they listened to what Paul was saying, mightn't you? Because there's a lot of language there about testing the teachers and realising these false teachers were false and coming through that and realising they weren't. The language of enduring in the face of suffering, which they were starting to move away from. But then look at the next sentence here. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. And on it goes. I wonder if we can safely speculate that this church in Ephesus, they listened to some of what Paul said, and they hunkered down, and they hardened up, and they responded to the body blows, and they got back on their feet. But in that hardening, and in that strengthening, they somehow lost the tenderness and the closeness and the love and the intimacy that they should have with Jesus. Does that make sense? Mm. They chose doctrine over and above relationship as opposed to going for both in there. My point of pointing that out, and it's somewhat speculative, you can come to your own judgment on the evidence there, my point in pointing it out is to say that if there is such a genuine and real risk of spiritual death for this church in Ephesus, then we can't be complacent ourselves, can we? Either as individuals, and recognising spiritual life is never something to be complacent about, or to assume will continue, but also about our health as a church. And so the paragraph that I read, and that I want to sketch in, if you like, is Paul's charge to Timothy. In fact, in my Bible it's called a final charge to Timothy. 
where Paul says, look, this is what you have to be like. In contrast to those five sets of people, deserters, etc., etc., this is what you need to be like. And you can see it because in verse 10 and in verse 14, he uses the same phrase. He says, but as for you, or you then, and then again in sentence 14, but as for you, they're Paul's markers in, in Greek, his language. They didn't have full stops and punctuation and paragraph breaks like we have today. The repeating of words was the way that they showed structure or purpose. He says, but as for you, but as for you. And the first one, 10 to 13, is about our model for true spiritual life, if you like. He says, remember what you've seen. And then the second instruction, sentence 14, but as for you, is about the manual for true spiritual life. Remember what you've heard. So let's take the first one. Remember what you've seen. What is the model for spiritual life? This is what he says. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Idacodium, Lystra, or Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I wonder if you can spot what he does there. He first holds himself up as the model to follow, doesn't he? You remember my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, and the my could appear before each one of those actually. My faith. My patience, my love, my endurance. He's reminding Timothy of what Timothy had seen in Paul. Remember, they'd spent 30 years in each other's company. Timothy had been Paul's right-hand man, his, his co-worker in what had happened. And did you notice um, the places that are mentioned? Antioch, Icodium and Lystra. Paul was, uh, Timothy rather, was from Lystra. That's his hometown, Timothy's home place, where Timothy was converted and first met Paul. And Icodium, uh, Antioch sorry, and Icodium were places that Timothy was with Paul and where Paul and potentially Timothy were thrown into prison. So he's saying, remember what you've seen. The model for true spiritual life is not to avoid suffering, but that suffering is a real experience, almost an authenticating mark of true faith. After all, as Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, didn't he? The thing that should raise a question in our minds is at the end of sentence 11. Do you see what Paul writes? Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. What can Paul mean by that? Because Paul's lounging in prison. He got beaten up. He was near death numerous times. He wasn't rescued. Is Paul delusional? <coughs> he says a similar thing in chapter 4, verse 18. He says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely into his kingdom. Well, Paul's life wasn't very safe, was it? I think what Paul is saying he's been rescued from is rescued from denying Jesus because of suffering. Rescued from being ashamed of Jesus and trying to distance himself from Jesus to avoid the imprisonment and persecution. I often wonder, I think back to my days in a rugby club and the amount of times I swallowed back acknowledging or admitting I was a Christian because I thought the banter would be too rich and fruity and I wanted to avoid it. And I think actually I, I let Jesus down there. I should have been praying like Paul, rescue me not from the suffering but from the denial of Jesus because of the suffering. So he lifts himself up and says, I'm the specific model to follow. Suffering is not 
to be ashamed of if you want true spiritual life. But then he generalizes it in verse 12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so he says, it's not just me, it's not just Paul. Actually, follow anyone who's desiring to live a godly life. And one of the hallmarks of following Jesus is you will be like Jesus. We read that all the time, don't we? In Philippians, there's that shocking phrase where Paul says, I want to be like you in, my, in your death, my Lord. I want to actually suffer like Jesus, not because of some sadist, oddity, personality quirk, but because it is a hallmark of following Jesus. If they murdered our king, what can we expect if we follow him? It's very challenging stuff. I find verse 12 incredibly challenging when I reflect on my own life and the absence of any real suffering. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The worst I've had is a peanut flick to my head. I'm quite serious. It's the worst, I think, persecution I've experienced as a Christian giving a talk in front of a group with someone lobbing a peanut. Someone lobbed a bottle once. That was a bit worse. But Ninja Reactions, I caught it. It was awesome. Like that. So first he's held up the models we should follow and to not be ashamed or embarrassed about suffering. And it's cool, it's, it's, it's true, isn't it? We become like those we imitate. Um, over half term we visited my mum and dad uh, at the same time that my brother, my older brother, I have an older brother, two younger sisters, my older brother was there with his wife, uh, Russell and Catherine, and their little boy Matthew. Matthew's about 18 months old now. And my brother has quite a distinctive walk. Um, I used to give him quite a lot of banter about the way he walked, about poles and orifices and things, um, about how my brother would kind of walk like in a particular straight-backed manner. What's strange is Matthew at 18, and my, my brother kind of takes a primary role in caring for him, um, walks just like my brother. It's really strange to watch. It's like a proper mini-me. And they were walking down my mum and dad's little lane outside their house, and I was watching them from behind uh, yesterday afternoon. And it literally is like a mirror image. It's kind of very straight back, like his body's not moving, his legs are going like this. Because you become like those you imitate or emulate, don't you? So Paul is really clear here. He's saying, make sure you've identified those you follow correctly. And one of the hallmarks of who to follow the true spiritual life is they suffer for Jesus. What about the manual then? for true spiritual life. If the first thing was the model, what you've seen, Paul and others, the second one is the manual, what you've heard. Remember what you've heard. So now sentence 14. But as for you, notice that again, but what about you? But as for you, continue in what you've learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So clearly now, the Bible, the scripture as it's called here, and and Paul would have explicitly been referencing the Old Testament, because the New wasn't yet gathered together and put together, but we can read it as what we would call the whole Bible, Old and New Testament. Clearly that's now at the centre of Paul's thinking here, isn't it? And I think he says three things uh, to Timothy when it comes to getting the Bible in its right place. First of all, he says it's about, it's, it's nothing new. It's nothing new. Notice the word in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned. 
There's no master's level in Christianity, there's just the bachelor's level. Does that make sense? You cannot outgrow or, or overdevelop what the Bible has to say. Continue, there's, there's nothing new. And so as soon as someone comes in, I think, if, you want, if you're looking for markers, and a number of you have said to me over the course of the last couple of months, how do I identify today's false teaching? And it's a really good question, because it's always subtle. It's always incredibly subtle. Remember, Timothy, after 30 years in Christian leadership, didn't see it. Paul had to write to him and say, don't you realise what's going on? I think one of the markers is, as soon as someone starts to say, this is a new thing. This is a new revelation from God. This is a new vision. This is God communicating in a new way. That should ring alarm bells. God's word is ever fresh in its application, but it is timeless in its reality and its truth. As soon as someone starts coming in and saying there's a new thing, I think that should ring an alarm bell. Actually, no, nothing new. Continue in what you have learned. Never outgrow the Bible. Never put the Bible... In second place, never use the Bible as the launch pad to reach something higher or more. Continue in what you've learned. So nothing new. The second is nothing complicated. Look at sentence 15. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are or which were able to make you wise. Infancy, the word infancy there from childhood, your Bible might say, is the word for a toddler. A wee one, a little one, 18 months, two years old, three years old. Remember that actually you knew the Bible from when you were two or three years old. And at that age, it made you wise for salvation. That's how the language flows through. That Timothy, as a toddler, grasped the truth of the Bible sufficiently to put his faith in Jesus. And so I think as soon as something is becoming complicated, it takes a guru or a mediator to explain it to you. You require someone else other than Jesus to give you access to this new thing. That's an alarm bell should ring. No, no, no. There is only one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus, Paul writes in 1 Timothy. And thirdly, it's nothing else. Do you see sentences 16 and 17? All scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. There's a complete array of what it can be used for. So the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good word. Or yours might say may be competent or complete for every good work. Nothing else is required over and above the Bible. It is the sword of the Spirit. And if you're trusting in Jesus, the Spirit will work and give you full understanding through the Bible, complete you, make you competent for every good work. You don't need anything else. This is how I explained it to our boys this afternoon uh, when I was trying to explain what I'd be saying tonight, which is kind of a, uh, a routine that we're trying to, a, a Sunday tradition in our family that we've tried to put in, is I sit down with the boys and try and explain to them something of what I'll be talking to you grown-ups in the evening about and this is what I chose to try and help them to understand is that the Bible you don't need anything over and above the Bible the Bible has everything we need to know about God and we don't need anything else because we were sitting in the kitchen my illustration was to get the bread knife and of course with young boys if you're using a knife you immediately have their attention don't you and they just want to hold it and touch it and it's sharp and dangerous and I ham it up so you think it was a chainsaw or something and actually it's a little um, what they call paring knife you know but we had this this kind of bread knife thing in one hand and then I got this cool little 
uh, pen knife, Swiss army knife that we had. And I said, some people think that the Bible's like a bread knife. It's only really good for one thing, kind of church. But actually, that's not what the Bible is. The Bible is a Swiss army knife. It has every little gadget you could possibly think for every situation in life you might need. That's what Paul's saying here, isn't he? He's saying, actually, the Bible is not just useful for teaching. It's useful for teaching and rebuking. And not just that, it's also useful for correcting and for training in righteousness. In fact, it's useful for thoroughly equipping people for every good work. The Bible is all you need. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not suggesting we're not sophisticated and don't draw on all sorts of other sources of information. But the Bible in and of itself is sufficient when it comes to understanding who God is. And so as soon as someone comes along and starts to say, well, the Bible is a good start, but I need to give you X, Y and Z. Uh, you need to have the second blessing. That should ring alarm bells to us. The desire and the hunger to have a fullness of God's spirit working in our lives is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But we mustn't allow that, to, that we mustn't let that to take us beyond the Bible. So if at any point when someone stands up to preach, they'd never do it physically or literally, but you think actually the Bible's back here somewhere. The Bible's behind them. Or they're standing on the Bible like it's a launch pad. This will get me started, but I've got to go somewhere. Alarm bells should ring. Nothing new, continuing what you've learnt. Nothing complicated. He's known it from childhood. Nothing else. It's everything necessary to make us complete when we are filled with God's Spirit who applies it and transforms us through it. The last thing to note, and I find this interesting, is there's two outcomes that this centrality of the Bible gives us. The first is in verse 15. It says it makes us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's about what we might call justification or initiation. That's the beginning, the way in, isn't it? The Bible has made me wise for salvation. I'm, I'm in. But the second outcome, verse 17, is that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You could call that sanctification or you could call that the way on, couldn't you? Do you see that? That it's the Bible that is necessary to bring us to faith in Jesus and it's the Bible that is necessary to equip us to live for Jesus. It's good and right for both that the way in the Bible which tells us about Jesus is the way on the Bible which tells us how to live for Jesus and thoroughly equips us. So my hope and my prayer, my intent, as I've wrestled with that passage, quite familiar passage, or certainly some of those verses in it are, is that each of us might pause and kind of say, actually, I should be really thankful for the Bible. It should make me really happy that this is how God has done it. This accessible, clear, I can read it every, book, every day in my language book that tells me all about God. Thank you for that. To delight in it more... This is the place I can be made complete and ready for every good work. This is where I'll be taught and corrected and rebuked and encouraged. Thank you for that. I come to it like a pupil to a schoolmaster. And should make us obedient freshly to the Bible, especially obedient to the parts of the Bible we don't want to obey. That's the crunch, isn't it? Easy to obey the Bible when we agree with it. Much harder when we don't. And it's only reminding ourselves of what the Bible is. That means when we come to the point where we say, I, dis I disagree with the Bible, we can say, well, God is wiser and, does make, and makes no mistakes. 
and God is loving and wishes me no harm and therefore even if I don't understand I will obey and do what it says let's pause for a moment and I'll pray and then 